please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. Okay, on a sermon on pride, I forget to turn on my mic. I'm up here how many Sundays, and I also forgot to load the slides. So it was just a suite to worship this morning. And uh, someone also had to get the text that said salted with fire. Like, Jesus, yeah, of course we know what that means. Very straightforward, Mark. Uh, and so if you're coming hoping to get an extended commentary on Salted with Fire, I'd probably say like one line about it. I just, I, I, don't, I don't know everything it means. Um, and to be honest, in prepping the sermon, this week it was decently challenging to figure out how do, how do these stories come together? Mark, Jesus, what's going on? How are you weaving these together? And so I hope um, that as we walk through the text that we just see Jesus. And hopefully the outline just brings us into the text and takes us to Christ. And it did make me think when I was preparing this of a game I'm assuming was a universal kid game. I don't know, we'll find out in a minute. But you would, you would say, last one there is a rotten egg. You ever play that, you know? 
And uh, so we played it all the time as a kid. And then, of course, then I'm going to teach my kids. And so I teach them. But then this is what they do. If I'm in the lead, they're like, first one there's a rotten egg. <laughs> like, last one wins. Like, you can't do that. It's totally changing the game. And every time, every time I'm in the lead, I end up being, I just end up being the rotten egg every time in, in this scenario. And so I thought of this as we're coming to a text in which the rules of the race, the, the way of the kingdom is an upside down kingdom. And as we look at this and we see what Jesus has to say, he has a lot to say about our pride and he has a lot to say about the kingdom and it is quite upside down. So here's what we're gonna do as we walk through this text. Really, it's gonna be, I think, three snapshots in which Jesus is comparing, you might say, the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. You might say the kingdom of pride or the kingdom of humility. And so each snapshot kind of compares this and there's a backdrop to this. And it is Jesus' perfect embodiment of the kingdom of God. And that's where we're gonna start. We're gonna see Jesus perfectly embody the kingdom of God. And then these three snapshots. The first one, a running a race in which you've got this comparison between climbing the corporate ladder to the top versus a race to the bottom. And that's verses 33 to 37. Then we'll go to drafting a team. Verses 38 and through 41, in which you, you've got this sense of this excluding, this criticizing of someone else versus laying down a critical spirit and letting the word of the Lord or uh, the Lord do his work. And then snapshot three, you've got this running to sin versus fleeing from sin. So those are the three snapshots that we're going to look at. These two kingdoms, the upside down kingdom versus the kingdom of man, one where then the kingdom of God, it's a race to the bottom. It's laying down of trying to be extra critical of things that you're seeing just because they're not of you. And number three, fleeing from sin. I'll just be honest, I'm, I, I'm coming this morning just feeling the weight of the text and the reality of pride in my life. And I hate it. I just, I don't want, I don't want pride. And one of the means of grace, apparently the Lord has given me, is to preach a sermon on pride in which you're just in the text all week thinking on pride and I, I just want pride to meet its death at the cross. And I want for everyone in this room, if you know this pole of pride, I, I want this text to grip us that pride might find its death, not in our own strength, but in Christ alone. If you're here and you're someone here this morning that you know all too well, I don't want to just be a good employee. I want to be better than that person right there. Like, I don't want to just be a good parent, a good mom. I want to be a better mom than them. Or I, my church, this is the way to do it. And everyone else who does it, it just, no, you can't. If you know these things of pride and envy and self-exaltation and this selfish competition, ungodly, trying to get to the top, like if you know that this morning, I want you to hear hope this morning. I want you to see in this text the one who laid down his life, that we, those who struggle with pride, could have hope. So I'd love to pray as we get ready to look at this text and pray that God would meet us. So let's pray. Father, we need your help. I know I'm not the only person in this room that says I hate my pride and I want it 
gone. And we need your help. Would you help us? Would you meet us now as we look at this text? Would you do even just this morning heart work that needs to be done that would lay up aside our selfish pursuits? And we would run to the bottom. We'd be a part of this upside down kingdom where we'd get far greater joy than what our pride promises. So be with us now as we look at this text. In your sins, let me pray. Amen. All right, so let, let's set the scene, and we'll do that by looking at verses 30 and 31, and kind of just orient where we are in the Gospel of Mark. And so here's how it opens. We read this in verse 30. They went from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Okay, so the scene where they're going from Capernaum, no, they're going through Galilee to Capernaum. That's what, that's what they're going to do. They're going to get to a house in Capernaum. And as they're traveling, Jesus is going out of his way to make sure the crowds don't know that they're traveling this route. Why? It's because he wants to teach his disciples. So just get the scene. Like he's gone, extra effort. We don't want interruptions because I've got something I need to teach you. What does he want to teach them? We'll pick it up in verse 31. And here's... Uh, verse 31 and 32. Here's, here's what he wants to teach them. Saying them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask. So Jesus paints this perfect picture of the upside down kingdom. We got God in the flesh. Comes down takes on human form, fully God, fully man, and he's going to humble himself to the point of death. And he's painting this picture of humility and teaching his disciples what's going to happen. And they're so lost, they're, they, they don't understand. This is not the first time. This is the, at least the second time. And they're so confused, they don't even have anything to say. They're, they're too afraid to ask. And so we get this perfect snapshot of the kingdom of God in Jesus, and now we get this that's the backdrop in which the three snapshots are compared. And so now we're going to get into the scene, if you will, of this, the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. These two um, realities compared. And we're going to see about this running the race. So picture, um, they're walking. Jesus wanted to teach them. They've got nothing to say. Now we, let's just pick up in verse 33 where we read this. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, what this means is that after Jesus goes out of his way to make sure that they're alone, to teach them, they don't know what to do with his teaching. So Jesus, I I'm picturing, I guess maybe he like falls behind and the 12 disciples continue together and they're gathered together, not talking to Jesus. Instead, they're arguing among themselves which John and I were talking about this earlier, it's just amazing the distance that pride creates in relationships all over. You literally see the distance. They're so far apart, Jesus has to ask them, obviously he knows what they're talking about, but he asked them what they were talking about, and it wasn't like, hey Jesus, you were walking with us. So picture the 12, they're arguing. What are they arguing about? Jesus just talked about dying. Here's, here's their conversation. Uh, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So that's the conversation that they're having. And 
just, you're meant to feel the, uh, the backdrop, and you're meant to feel this snapshot in comparison. You're meant to feel the contrast. Here's Jesus. He's talking about laying down his life, and here are the t- disciples. They're talking about exalting their lives. You've got Jesus, who's he's literally going to lay down his life. That's what he's describing. And they're like, how can we climb the corporate ladder and, and smash each other as we go up so that I make sure I get to the top? That's what's going on. That's the picture. So now, there's the contrast, and Jesus is now going to teach his disciples about this upside-down kingdom. So here's where he goes. We'll pick up in verse 35. So he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Okay, so interestingly, Jesus is not actually angry at them for striving to be first, kind of striking. He's, he's actually saying, you just got the wrong method. So you want to be first, and you think, I got to climb to the top, and I'm going to tell you right now, that's not the way the kingdom works. You must be last of all. You must be servant of all. The first one there is the rotten egg. The last one's the winner. That's that's the image, and then he takes a child and he puts him in the middle as this live parable. So go there with me. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So it's an object lesson that completely undercuts any ungodly competition, selfish ambition. He goes straight to the heart of our tendency to get on a high horse and to boast. And I'm not saying all competition is bad. Don't hear like, wow, Don doesn't like sports. Um, That's not what I'm saying. Ungodly competition, key key there. But you you can see in the image, he's going after this sense of this pride of self that would say we're too important. And how does he do it? He grabs this he grabs a child, which especially in that culture was not highly esteemed. They were um, the bottom of the totem pole. And he says, look, do you see this endless need of bundle of joy, this precious fountain of constant care and runny noses and tinter tantrums and uh, endless are we there yet and dirty diapers and the constant question. Do you see that? Because I want you to see it, and here's what I want you to know. In the middle of all that, your job is to run as fast as you can to do everything you can to care for them. Then you'll be first. That, that's, that's the race you're running. So I, I heard it put this way, and I think it's helpful. Like, he, he puts a child in the center, and what he says is he says, how you receive this child says more, not about how you think about children, but how you think about me. How you receive this child, if you can receive them, then you can receive me, and if you can't, you can't. And so, not, it's not just the sweet, like, infants, you know, that are so cuddly and nice and warm and snuggly. Um, it's, it's not, it's, it's the uncool, unfriendly, really, you know, strong-willed, frustrating, hard-headed, if you can imagine a kid being like that. Kid. Um, like that, taking that and receiving them and the reason that Jesus puts that as the central image is to say if you cannot get off your high horse self-importance 
thinking about yourself so great, if you can't get off of that to get down and receive a child, then you cannot receive me. Which means that the gospel, when it's working, does a humbling effect on your life. Because the whole image is, this isn't normal. What's normal? The conversation the disciples are having. That, that would be the normal reaction. This means that in order for the gospel, meaning you're going to receive Jesus, what's going to happen in your life? Well, here's what's going to happen. You are going to be humbled. You are going to realize, wait a minute. I'm like that child. I'm a, I would like to think I'm unlike the child. But in the kingdom of God, I'm a lot more like the child. I'm a lot more needy. Turns out I really need love poured out on me. It really turns out that I'm the, get this, I'm the one that's fussy. And so I, I don't know, this isn't in the notes, so I hope this is helpful. <laughs> I just feel like I say it. I don't know if people have said this to you. You're just not that important. Like, it's a, the gospel just humbles you and says, you know who is really important? God. You know who really matters? You know who's at the center of the universe? Not you. And you know who doesn't tell you that? No one tells you that. Most of the, like, just, you don't go to third grade and the teacher's like, you know what, kids? I just want to let you know this is not about you. You are not really that important. <laughs> that's just not how it starts. At least that's not how my third grade started. Maybe that's how your third grade started. That's not how mine, I, actually, I don't remember third grade. Let's be honest. I don't remember third grade. I don't think it started that way, but I'll ask my parents if that's how it started. The point being, what the gospel does is it humbles you. And it doesn't humble you by saying, look, you don't matter, you're not important. I'm not trying to just like give a blow to um, the fact that you've been created in the image of God and therefore like God values you. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that you, you are actually needy. You are actually lowly. You are actually the one uh, who needs care in the kingdom. And if, you, if that hasn't hit home, and well, how would you know? Well, how do you treat in that society, some of the, the, the most needy, the lowly. How do you treat them? Because if you treat them like you don't have time for them, then what's very clear is that you, you haven't realized what you need. And, and therefore, why would you receive Jesus? In fe- instead, what you receiving of Jesus, you might actually be thinking, I'm actually just giving myself to Jesus. He's, this is kind of a win-win, you know? I kind of get him, he kind of gets me. And that's just not, like, the, the gospel is saying, you're the needy one, you need to receive and here's the example, do you receive a child like this? And, um, and it really does paint this upside down picture of the kingdom and it undoes all of the things that we think are important and it says what you think is important in the kingdom of God, it's the opposite. So I just want, like picture it this way. Just to get the sense of the upside down kingdom that when the gospel comes, it just gives a crushing blow to pride. So just imagine that today, February 26th, you discover the cure for cancer. You go home, your computer model that you've been working on, it just like says success. It probably wouldn't happen that way, but just go with me here. Success, you call someone and they say, you get the Nobel Prize, congratulations, you know, you've, you've cured cancer, and you, you get, you know, you get to heaven, and I just, I, I heard, this is, this is the image I heard, and I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense, that's helpful. I don't know if it's exactly going to go like this, but I think it does help emphasize the upside-down kingdom. You get to heaven, Jesus says, hey, I, I want to talk to you about one of your most significant moments in life. You remember February 26th? Yeah, yeah, I remember February 26th, 2023. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. He's like, no, no, no. 
That's not what you're thinking. Really? It's not the day that I discovered the cure for cancer? That's not, the, that's not what we're highlighting here on this day? Like, no, no, no. That morning, uh, your daughter, get ready uh, to go to church, and she was crying because she, she didn't like the way she looked in the, in the dress. And, and you got down on your knee, and you said, honey, you're, you look beautiful. And you gave her a hug, and she walked out smiling. That's a really significant moment in your life. That's the upside-down kingdom, right? You're thinking like, uh, okay, first of all, uh, you, you're fine to discover the cure for cancer. My point is not to, that you do those, but you just get the sense the upside-down kingdom of God is this picture in which it's not this climbing up the corporate ladder. And so even this morning, there's a member here, and they have 100-plus patents to their name. There's 100-plus product things in the world that exist that didn't exist before because of them. And this morning, they're here in the sanctuary. On the floor, laying on the floor, playing with a little kid. I just picture Jesus saying, those 100 plus patents, no, that, that mattered. You're receiving a little child because it says something about your heart. And so, um, when we look at this upside down kingdom, when we look at this race to the bottom, the point that Jesus is trying to say is that my kingdom is one in which Humility is contrasted to the pride of man. So, you might find yourself just here, like, prone to climb the corporate ladder, prone to look better than others, prone to think, I'm above those tasks. And and if that's you, I, I want you to see that if you let the gospel crush that pride, here's what you get. More of God. When the gospel crushes our pride, when we receive a child, when we do the lowest of lows, fill in the blank, scrub the toilets, do the menial tasks, whatever it might be, when you are the kind of person who doesn't think you're above those things but receives them, what, you, what does the text say? You receive Jesus. And so if we let the gospel crush our pride, we get more of God. I want that. I want more of God, less of my pride. Okay, so that's snapshot one. So we'll go to snapshot two. So uh, one was running a race. Now we're looking at this, if you will, drafting of a team. And we'll pick up in verse 38 and see where this conversation goes. So look at verse 38. John said to them, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And (laughs) I love this. I love this picture. This is such a good picture of pride. Um, Jesus didn't say the word pride, but you can just feel he's talking about it. Because here's the thing. When, uh, when pride is called out, what does it do? It blame shifts. So just, here's the picture. Jesus just finished talking about humility, about receiving a child. And, and John is like, yeah, you know what, I'll work on that. Uh, Jesus, you know what? I forgot to tell you the other day. Can you believe it? A guy was out there casting out a demon in your name, and he wasn't among us. Can you you believe that? Yeah, yeah, I get the child thing. But can you believe this guy? I love it. I just think like this is just, first of all, humility came because the disciples were willing to put this in the text. And so here's pride. And what's funny is that John pictures like this is a slam dunk. And he gets shot blocked just out of the stadium. 
by Jesus. So look at, look at what Jesus does where, where he goes to John's, uh, to John's example. But Jesus said to him, uh, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because of you, belong, sorry, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So John's got this like critical spirit that says they're not on our team, there's no way, we're team Jesus, they're not, they can't cast out demons in your name. And here's Jesus saying, look, we do not need more enemies. We've got plenty, okay, we've got the Pharisees, we've got the Sadducees, we don't need to make an enemy out of the guy who's casting demons out in my name. If he's not against us, he's for us. And it makes me think of texts like, um, like this. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except they're in the Holy Spirit. So here's a guy, he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. And in short, it, it is true, in time, it will be shown whether he's following Jesus. Once Jesus dies and rises again, will this man continue to proclaim Jesus as Savior? We don't know, but Jesus is saying for the moment in which he is casting out demons in my name, he's not against us. He's for us, and so the upside-down kingdom is, is one in which you're not trying to make divisions because they're not a part of our crew, but rather you're saying, in humility, I will let the Spirit of God do whatever work it needs to do. It turns out I'm not the one who gets to decide, is that the Spirit of God working? Or decide, you know what, no, you're not of us, so you can't really do that. It's, it's uh, the humility to say the Spirit will blow where it will. And I'm okay not being in the pilot seat. So I don't know if you um, are aware of the revivals in Kentucky at a, there's a university called Asbury there. And, uh, and it just revealed to me this critical spirit I have. I can just relate. I first heard about it, and what was my first reaction? I was skeptical. That was my first reaction. I don't want that to be my first reaction. I hear of a movement of God. I want it to be rejoicing, overjoyed. Of course, there needs to be discernment, and in time, will this revival bear fruit showing that it truly is a work of God? Yes, sure. But would it be that my first reaction would not be skeptical, as if Don gets to decide, nope, not the, not the spirit of God at work. Like, what evidence did I have? The evidence I had was there was a revival, there was a chapel service that was happening on Wednesday, and it kept going. It didn't end. I, it just went all week. That was my evidence. And I'm, and I'm immediately skeptical, and I just, I don't, I want that dead. I want to be wise. I want to be discerning, and that is very different than being skeptical. I'll just put it this way. Like, if there was a work of God among campus outreach here in Table Rock, I'm not skeptical. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's incredible. And yet, here it is, because they're not, I don't know who they are, and they're not of me. I'm just immediately skeptical. And I think Jesus is just saying, his spirit would put that to death. Wouldn't put to death discernment and wisdom, but this critical, doubting spirit that would doubt that the word, the work of the Lord would blow where it wills and I don't need to be a one in driver's seat. So, let's go here, number three. So we've seen running a race, we've seen drafting a team, or excluding people, and now, finally, snapshot three, fleeing sin. 
So go with me to verse 42. And we're going to see first, it actually begins not with a call for us to flee sin, but with a call for us not to cause others to sin. sin. So verse 42. Whoever caused one of these little ones to stumble, who believes in me to sin, sorry, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So the snapshot, comparison, the kingdom of man, the kingdom that's not of God, what does it do? It, it does anything to get people to join you in your sin and rebellion. You're like, hey, we're going out. You want to go? Come on, let's go. We're, you know, whatever it is. Like, you're, just, you're wanting to jo- have people join you in your sin, and the kingdom of God says, no, it's the opposite. You are actually doing everything you can to not cause other people to sin. And then the kingdom of man, now we're going to get another comparison, would run to sin. I'm going to get everything I can out of this world, and the kingdom of God says, I'm going to flee sin to the point that I would cut off my hand. So look at verses 43 through 50. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Where there, worm does not die and fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And so I think you see this verses 50, 49 and 50, this salted with fire, this, these images of the Old Testament sacrifices in which salt and fire purified sacrifices. And so you get this, this very clear picture that the kingdom of God is one where it's one of sacrifice, one in which you're willing to cut off your hands and your feet to pursue the kingdom of God. And so like what is really, at the end of the day, what's the concrete sacrifices? It's to cut off your hand. It's to cut off, to gouge out your eye or your foot. So the kingdom of God very much takes sin serious. Or the kingdom of man, the opposite, revels in sin, delights in sin. The kingdom of God would hear these warnings. Those in the kingdom would heed them and take it serious. So just think about this for a minute. Um, I heard this description of warnings. I think it's helpful. Two, warnings do two things. So uh, an effective warning lets you know, number one, that there is danger. Number two, it does it early enough that you could flee from danger. So every firefighter I have ever met will be absolutely adamant that you have a fire alarms in your home. Even though when you're cooking in your kitchen, they go off and you really want to take that thing and throw it out the window. Why does it go off? Okay, maybe that doesn't happen in your house. Sorry, Jackie. I do a lot of cooking too, okay? So don't read into this more than that was meant to be read into. Why does it go off? It goes off because fire alarms are really, really sensitive to, um, to fire, early warning signs of fire. And so... At the first sign, what do they do? They go off. And the whole point is that you would heed the warning and you would get out. And so, again, what does every firefighter you've ever met say to you? They say this. When you hear the fire alarm, get out. Why do they say that? Because they know story after story of people who did not heed the warning and stayed. And so here we come to a warning. And like every effective warning, It's warning you of danger, 
and it's warning you before it is too late. So you're here this morning, and I want you to hear a warning. There is a moment when it's too late, and right now, it is not too late, and what's the warning? The warning is sin will kill you. The results of sin, it will take you to a place with unquenchable fire, and so the warning here is to flee from sin, to turn and run away. And so he gives this example of cutting off your hands and your eyes. Now, immediately you might say, well, well, it's not literal. And you're right, it isn't literal in the sense that, like, Jesus didn't have a band of pirates that were, like, walking around like one-eyed pirates, you know, following him. <laughs> or, like, with the one-armed bandits, you know, because they all just cut off their arms. So the, the problem, it, like, that's true, that it's not literal, in that sense. But here would be the problem. The problem would be that, thank you. The problem would be that we would think it's not literal and so we would think the warning isn't, isn't literal, isn't serious. And that's exactly what we're not supposed to think. We're supposed to see that sin is so serious that Jesus would say, it would be worth cutting off your arm in order to kill sin so you don't go to hell. It would be worth it for you to have no eyes than to have both eyes because they cause you to sin and end up in hell. That's what, so don't hear the, the hyperbole and move it to say, you know what, sin isn't a big deal. It's actually the exact opposite. It's a warning that we are not to flirt with, fondle, get near sin. Like, it's, it's a warning sign. And history is full of people ignoring warning signs. Did you know that like before the Titanic hours, before it hits the iceberg, there were warnings? And, and the people decided not to tell the captain. Or the, the day before the Challenger rocket goes off, there were engineers who knew when it gets cold, the O-ring doesn't work. They're begging them to delay the launch because it froze the night before. Delay it, delay it one more day. One guy was so adamant that the warning should be heat, like heated, he didn't show up. He didn't show up for the launch. It was his job. He didn't show up. And they launched it. And so I just, I, I want you to hear this warning sign and hear the fire alarm going off. And don't think to yourself, I got time. Flee from sin. Kill sin or it will kill you. You cannot be thinking it's just one look. Hey, you know what? I struggle with pornography, but so does everyone else. I've got time. Or I str yeah, I struggle with gossip, but is it really like it helps their prayer requests? Um... <laughs> Or, I don't know why I said that. That was definitely not in the major. Or, I, I, I do, I turn, you know, I turn to food when I'm stressed and I'm just prone, prone to gluttony. But it's okay. It's not that big a deal. Is, is this really that big a deal? Yes, it is a big deal. That's the warning. Yes, it is a big deal. And you would hear the warning sign and turn and say, it would be worth it for me to cut off my arm than to continue to just sit here and meddle with the sin. And I heard a saying put this way. I'm going to tweak it a little bit. But here's the saying I heard. They said this. The sun can burn out your eyes 
from 92 million miles away, and most of us think we can just casually walk into the presence of its creator. Thinking our sin is no big deal. And this promise of fire, if we don't cut it off, is not really that big a deal. And I would want you to see in this text, it's a big deal. And we need to run from sin. I, I mean, I started by saying I hate pride. And I would want you to hear that is coming from a heart to say it's a big deal. And I want it dead. And I want warning signs like this to help me. And there's hope. I want you to hear there's hope. I don't want you to just hear the warning sign and think you don't have anywhere to run. Like how are you gonna get out of danger because there's hope. You've seen these three snapshots. These snapshots of the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. But where did we start? We started with Jesus. This snapshot of the one who perfectly embodied the kingdom of God. How? By laying down his life. By laying down his life for the needy. So if you feel the weight of sin and you feel I'm needy, there's hope. In the one who said, I will deliver myself over to sinners. The very ones who will kill me are the ones I came to save. That they might have in me grace that would look at their sin and it would see your sin is really deep and it's really wretched and it's really ugly and the consequence is really serious and he would say, my grace is deeper. So here's what I'd want you to see. And we'll close here. What we see from Christ is this. For the grace of God has appeared. It's appeared in Jesus. And what did it do? What did the grace of God do? Here's what it did. It's bringing salvation for all people. So the grace of God brings salvation. That is our hope. It's when the warning sign's going off. Where do you go? You run to Jesus because you realize your pride is crushed. You aren't high on your horse. No, you are lowly. You're just like this child. You, you, you think, uh, yes, uh, well, who am I to think I can decide what is of you? And you, you realize, yes, I hate sin and I need it dead and I need help. And you, you, you're, you're saying, I need this grace. And salvation comes and what does it do? It brings salvation and then it, what does it do? It's training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I want you to hear that grace that Jesus talks about in the laying down of his life, that, that background that this is all compared to, I want you to hear it is not only the grace that will secure your salvation, it is the very grace that you need to train you to renounce ungodliness, to flee worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright life. I want you to hear this morning hope. Hope for sinners. And you know what we get to do this morning? As we hear of that hope, we actually get to see it displayed. Because this morning, almost every morning at Table Rock, on a Sunday, we take communion. With very few exceptions, and one of them is when we get to do a baptism. And so we, what we actually get to do this morning is we actually get to see a visual representation that in someone's life, maybe, his life, he was pursuing the world, the kingdom of this world, 
And because of God's grace, is now pursuing the kingdom of God. And what we get to see is this visual representation of the death of the old man and the, the rising out of the water of a new man, created new in Christ. And what we see and what you'll hear today in the baptism is you will hear this call, are you renouncing Satan in all of his ways and running to Jesus? And we get to see that. And so I'm going to invite Andrew up, and Andrew at some point is going to bring Nate up.